we humans think of ourselves primarily as sighted animals, but it's easy to overlook the most evocative sense, which is smell, which is interesting because I'm now interviewing uh, Dr. Ruth Fisher, who's a lecturer at the University of New South Wales School of Civil and Environmental Engineering and the Odour Laboratory. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic, Ruth. Hi, Rod. Now, before we get into the meaty part of the conversation, can we just settle a little bit of terminology? Uh, can you differentiate the terms, and does it actually matter, odour versus smell? Side thought. Okay, so when we talk about an odour, it's really about the um, the human response to a compound, or and we call the compounds that have a sensory response odorants. And so odour is it's like that saying, if a tree in the forest falls, does anybody hear it? Huh. It's the same principle. So like if you have an odorant but nobody's there to detect it, you don't get a smell or an odour. So it's more of the sensorial response when we talk about odour. I suppose a property of something that has an odour. So they all kind of can be used interchangeably. Okay. Now, it must be an interesting uh, party conversation. Uh, how did you come to be studying odours? Well, I think one of the best things about odours is that everybody can relate to them. They've always smelt something either lovely or horrendous. Um, the real reason that I've kind of got into odours over the years is um, I grew up in the country and we actually lived a few kilometres away from an abattoir. And typically it was perfectly fine. You, you couldn't see it. It was a few kilometres away. But sometimes if that wind was going in the right direction and they were doing something a bit strange with their processing, you could smell this horrendous odour coming over. And so it was that kind of exposure to the discomfort from environmental odours and the challenges in really measuring and describing and monitoring odours that kind of led me to the research that I'm doing currently. Uh, well, tell me a bit more about that research. Yeah. So I'm a member of the Odour Laboratory, which is at um, UNSW, so part of the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And as part of the lab, we do a lot of work with industry, so looking at environmental emissions. And so nobody wants to live near an abattoir or a wastewater treatment plant that's particularly smelly. Um, so what we kind of are doing are working with industry to understand what are some of the odours that come from their sites and how do we manage and control them so that the community isn't impacted. Now, uh, near my house there is the sewage main line and there's events along the way and just occasionally you can get a bit of a whiff from it. It's not too bad. What, mm. what, what is that? So if you're along a sewer vent line, that's typically the sewage that goes from houses and things like that and goes to the wastewater treatment plant. So the reason that they're so high is that they want to disperse the odours before they can come down and be detected by us. Um, but sometimes if you do get the wind in the right direction, you can get a bit of a downcast. And that smell that you get that's really typical of sewers is due to hydrogen sulphide. And so it probably smells quite like rotten eggs. 
something mm-hmm. maybe a little bit sulfury, a bit, of, a bit of cabbage in there as well. So a lot of those smells are due to sulfur compounds. Uh, yeah. Is it actually bad for you? At the levels that we can typically detect odours, no. So um, the human nose is so amazing because it's so sensitive. And so typically for most compounds, the levels at which we smell them are much below any level at which there'll be a negative health consequence. So hydrogen sulfide is actually a really interesting compound because we're very sensitive at smelling it, which is good because at high concentrations, it can be quite toxic, but that's quite high. But once it gets to those higher levels, our nose actually gets overwhelmed and it stops smelling it. So sometimes it's the not smelling that can be more dangerous than the smelling. Yeah, yes, I can remember making hydrogen sulfide at, uh, in science at school. It was lots of fun. Stick the place out. Uh, and so, of course, the old uh, Italian word miasma meant a smell that was physically bad for you. But that's actually not really – you're not going to get a disease from a smell, are you? No. So when we talk about community discomfort and community impact, it's more of a psychosomatic response than an actual physical um, effect from odours. But again, that's still really important because if people are being exposed to odours that makes them feel uncomfortable, they can start getting headaches, feeling anxious and out of control with the situation. And so it's still something that we want to stop people being exposed to these nuisance environmental odours, but it won't cause any physical health damage. Not at those concentrations. Not at the concentrations that we typically smell them at. Okay. Well, if if we wanted to do something about it, if it became a community problem, is there something that the government could do to the infrastructure to reduce the, the smell? Yeah. So if there are problems in your area, um, the New South, well, if you're in New South Wales, it's the New South Wales EPA. And so they're the party well, the group responsible for managing those environmental nuisances. And so um, typically what you would do is you'd call them up or talk to the facility that you think the odour is coming from. And then they'd start having a look at, um, is it actually this site who's producing the odours? Maybe they'll get some consultants in, maybe the odour lab, and then they can start having a look at why are the odours being formed, what are the actual compounds responsible for them, and how does that relate to the process. So then if it gets very serious, they might close a site down, which is obviously we don't want that. Um, But hopefully there are other things that we can do, such as maybe changing some of the practices on site or installing um, infrastructure that can actually take the odorants out of the streams before they can become a nuisance. I'm not sure it's the site that you refer to, but the the vent comes off the sewage line. Mm -hmm. Is there something that could be done to the vent to modify it in some way? I presume the vent is there because the buildup of those gases in the sewage mains is an engineering problem. It'll damage the pipes in some way. Yeah, so typically they don't want hydrogen sulfide to build up in the gas. Um, And as well as hydrogen sulfide, you might have methane being formed if it gets to those anaerobic conditions in the pipes. So that's why they want to have an outlet. 
Um, so if you if there are problems with hydrogen sulfide odors from those vent gas lines, sometimes they can add some salts into the liquid phase, um, such as iron chloride, and these can kind of bind the sulfur. So the iron and the sulfur can bind and precipitate. And so that can reduce some of the hydrogen sulfide odors. Um, there's a lot of other chemicals that they can also add, or maybe they can put some scrubbers or activated carbon beds, but that will need some capital infrastructure to be built. Not necessarily too big, but it will be expensive. Uh, it's actually not too bad, but uh, and all of those things you mentioned would have either a capital expense or an ongoing cost associated with it. Now, you mentioned uh, you, you live near the abattoirs, right? And did you, did you find over time that you adjusted to the smell? Did your attitude to the smell change as you lived there? Um, it was still quite an intermittent smell. So I think that also brings into um, the picture one of the really interesting aspects of smell is that our perception can really change. And so this isn't my main area of research, um, I have a colleague who's a psychologist who's much more suited to this area, but people can have different responses. So you can either get quite used to an odour, so you kind of start blanking it out and not detecting it as much if you're exposed to it continuously, or sometimes it can go the other way and you can become really sensitised to it. And so um, you can detect it at even lower concentrations um, and it can make you feel quite uncomfortable. So for us, because it was quite intermittent, it was quite horrible. You have to close up the whole house. But we were quite lucky in that it could be resolved. But for other people in other situations, it can be quite challenging. And a lot of it is quite hard to predict which way they'll go. Will they become used to it or will they become highly sensitised? Yeah, I imagine there's a very strong cultural aspect to it as well. So our neighbours are Vietnamese, and I think it might be ginger or something, and it leaves a really strong odour inside the house. And uh, I know that if you cook yourself like that, you don't notice it after a little while. How much does the culture play into it? Yeah, so some of the properties of odour are things like hedonic tone, which is kind of like a ranking of how offensive or pleasant somebody finds an odour. And that can really vary um, in a population. And a lot of it is down to culture and experiences. And so some odours that people have nice connotations with or like they've kind of grown up with it, it's associated with nice life events, um, they can be quite positive. And then other people who might not have those same connotations can find it quite offensive. So there is a lot of variability in the community. No, I, I imagine, uh, you know, someone who has a story and they say, oh, I made myself eating an egg that was off. I cannot touch eggs anymore. So the, the term I used at the opening was evocative. So there's something about smell or odour that really taps directly into the primal brain, into your memories, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think some examples um, that we find quite interesting in the office is durian. So for us, it smells very sulfurous and it reminds us of a lot of our chemical standards, actually, which are sulfur compounds. Um, and it also smells like natural gas. 
to a lot of us. But then other people who have maybe grown up in cultures where they eat a lot of durian find it quite pleasant. And so while we're running around looking for a gas leak, they're like, oh, no, it just smells delicious like dessert. <laughs> so there's a lot of differences in how you interpret these different have you Have you ever encountered durian? I have eaten it before. It's not as It tastes much nicer than you think it would. But the smell is very strong. Oh, I suppose, yeah, there are some things you, you could eat. And when you go past abattoirs now, does that bring back memories of your childhood? Um, a little bit, yeah. Typically they are better managed, so they don't have the same issues as this example did have. But there's definitely something that's... Um, I suppose that's the interesting thing about odour. You can always describe it in different ways and relate it to different aspects of your life. Yes, you've got to describe it in terms of something else. So it's like when you drink a wine or you read the label and it says, oh, this has overtones of whatever I can't. <laughs> I won't add lead. Blackberries or yeah. horse manure. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the the physical process of how you smell something. What, what's happened when you smell? So first of all, the odorants have to be generated and then they have to travel through the air into your nose. And then once they're in the nose, they bind to different receptors and send a signal to your brain. And so typically odors are made up of a whole heap of different compounds. So therefore, due to just like implicit differences in, in ourselves and the types of receptors that we have and the signaling that goes to our brain, we can perceive the overall mixture kind of differently for different people. So there's certain compounds that some people might be much more sensitive to and also the opposite. So some people might not be able to smell certain compounds and if they have that, they have a specific anosmia which means they can't smell certain things. So you're, you're insensitive to, to some smells. I, I have heard the one about uh, if you eat asparagus, that your urine afterwards uh, either does or doesn't smell. I can't remember whether it's because it's there or because you, some people don't notice it. Oh, Do you know I haven't heard of that one. You no, that one? no yeah. I haven't. I have to eat asparagus and have a smell. Uh, so a... Anosmia or anosmia is the term you use, right? An anosmia, yeah. Right. So A-N-O-S-M-I-A. S-M-I-A, yeah. Now, some people are in the cooking business or they call themselves super tasters. I guess because taste and smell are very closely allied, aren't they? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so you have people who are super smellers, I guess. Yeah, and so... A lot of it is training, actually. So you can train yourself to be um, more sensitive to certain types of odours and so you can kind of distinguish them better out of a whole mixture. Um, but again, a lot of it still does come down to some of the physical characters as well. So not everybody can be a super smeller, but you can improve your sense of smell if you want to become better at tasting wine or chocolate or beer or something like that. You can focus on different notes. Yeah. Oh, I suppose it's so uh, you can train yourself to listen to music as well. You can pitch the, the a note, for example, detect the pitch of, of a note. Uh, now, something I've noticed, uh, I really dislike artificial sweeteners and because they leave a really strong aftertaste. Now, there is, is there equivalent 
the smell that that what's going on if that happens? Oh, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not big on the neuroscience behind uh, odors. Okay, I, I, I have heard. I'll, I'll have to check with one yeah. of my nutrition friends that the the chemical bonds or binds to the receptor and and clings to it, doesn't let it go, and it stays on for longer than it should. Yeah. Well, I I've heard of similar aspects happening with certain compounds in odors as well. So some of the odors that they use for masking scents. So if you want to try and disguise or manipulate scents, um, there's is a rationale that some of them bind longer to your receptors. So therefore they can kind of block the sites from some of the odors that you might not want people to smell. But oh, again, okay. so, the science I'm not exactly 100% on. Yeah, yeah. So now at, at home, if uh, someone hasn't shut the door, put the lid down properly, they've had a night on a curry. <laughs> do <you> spray, <laughs> not here, but uh, <laughs> do, you, do you spray stuff around to mask it? Do you have any recommendations about the sort of thing that's best for that? Um, I suppose... Personally, my first response would be ventilation. So if you ventilate something well enough, the odours will get down to concentrations that you can't detect them with your nose. And so I'd much prefer that solution. Um, I find sometimes when you spray things to mask it, you can kind of create weird, still offensive concoctions. Um, So... And, and I'm guessing that you could associate that spray with the odour. So you associate the two odours, Yes, and that has definitely been found with sometimes um, in industrial systems where they use masking agents around the plant boundaries. The community can develop a distaste to the actual masking agent as well because they associate it with the landfill and these unpleasant processes and things like that. Uh, so you have to be a bit careful with how you. Yeah. So, so well, speaking systems. speaking of landfill, and at the top of the interview, you you said your your main work is in industrial processes or industrial sites, and there's a project you worked on called the beneficial reuse of biosolids. Yeah. Now, what was that? So that was um, the topic that I did for my PhD. And so biosolids, I love talking about it. Biosolids are the, um, the solids from wastewater treatment plants. So they're pretty great sources of nutrients and organic matter and really good used in agriculture. But they do have an unpleasant side effect that they are quite smelly. So in Sydney, um, a lot of the biosolids that we produce are shipped to agricultural land. and Well, trucked, not shipped. Um, and that's good because we can reuse them on land and get all those benefits from the nutrients, but there is a lot of community discomfort, not only near the wastewater treatment sites where you're loading these into trucks and then transporting it through communities, but also near the land application sites. So what we were trying to do with our research was do lots of analysis throughout these wastewater treatment plants to identify what are the key compounds responsible for these unpleasant smells, why are they formed, so is there a way that we can optimise the process so they're not as smelly, 
And then also one of my colleagues was looking at it from the community perspective. So looking at, okay, so how do we communicate with the community and keep them informed so that it won't cause uh, this nuisance that this it is could. The, uh, the science communication side of things. Yeah. Just, just before you go back to the biosolids, can you be uh, or, or tell me what sort of biosolids? Are this ash from a sewage farm, that kind of stuff, or what type of biosolids? So typically it's just the organic matter from wastewater treatment plants. So once you have your sewage that comes from your sewer pipes where you get your vent gas, um, it comes into the wastewater treatment plant, you have big settling tanks, and then you scrape out the solids that settle out. And we process that a little bit, so get rid of, um, lower the microbial load, so they're quite safe, but they do because they're so rich in all of these nutrients and proteins and things, they can produce a lot of odorous compounds. And, of course, we associate that from where it came from. So I guess if it came out of, uh, say, a, if it was a sack of fertiliser, and it would just look like it came from a factory, we might have one association with it. Would you agree? And then if we saw it coming in the back of a truck, we knew that was from the sewage works? Yeah, is that, is that, exactly. Is part of the equation? Yeah. yeah. So um, there's some quite interesting examples globally around how to communicate and package these products. So in America, there's a product called Bloom, and it's a fabulous example because it's biosolids that have been treated using a very good process and then they sell it directly as a fertilizer and it's been it's very popular so it's a great example of how not only do you have to have the engineering right but you also have to have the community engagement and communication right uh, as well okay well tell me a little bit more about what constitutes the biosolid what what, are the, what stuff is in it? So um, if we're talking about precursors to, bar, to odors, so the things that cause the odors to be generated, um, typically it's proteins that are the culprits. And so there's a lot of proteins in the biosolids just from various organic matter that makes its way into the wastewater treatment plants. And these proteins, when microbes start degrading them, they can form sulfur compounds due to the sulfur that's part of the protein, um, some of the protein compounds. And so, therefore, that's why you get these range of different, particularly smelly compounds that are there. There's also things like carbohydrates um, that are there, and they can break down to different things like volatile fatty acids, which can also smell quite undesirable, like vinegar or smelly feet. And there can also be things like ketones formed as well that can have different different so is, types of odors. Okay, so it's quite a quite a rich brew and, and an asset too. That as you so that I guess one of the things you wanted from this project was to find ways to get benefit from all of that uh, and, and do something about the the negative effects. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's been a few examples where um, due to the community. Um, not being happy with the plants operating. Again, sometimes it is due to a lot of nuisance odours um, that wastewater treatment plants have to actually close or install a lot of capital investment. So we really want that situation to stop. We don't want the community to be impacted. 
So we want to look at how we can alter processes and maybe control specific sources of odors to try and minimize potential so, side effects. So there's, so there's partly the, the social aspect, but there's also the engineering chemical side of it. Which, which of those was your primary focus? I was kind of looking at the reasons that the odors were formed in the first place. So looking at the underlying chemical and microbial processes. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit, what, what does a bug do, right? It's going to land in this stuff and it's going to go, you have lots of nice things to eat. <laughs> what happens yep. then? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. So it's rich in so much organic matter. Therefore, it's very rich in microbes as well. And so a lot of those processes as the microbes are degrading this organic matter, typically if it's in anaerobic conditions, which a lot of the wastewater treatment plants are, um, because they can get biogas from them with their anaerobic digesters, which is a very good thing. We want that. Um, a side effect is that they do produce these sulfur compounds. So there's different ways that we can go about trying to control or minimize them. So if we can um, remove the water from them, that can kind of slow these processes down um, a bit because we want them to occur in one stage of the plant, but we don't want it to occur in the final product. And so, okay, so you, different... that means you, you're adjusting the processing treatment uh, cycle itself, right? Yeah, yeah. So controlling okay. these engineered processes that we can. <laughs> okay. And what was the, the main thing you concluded from them? So there was a few. We kind of concluded that we did a lot of sampling. So we have a lot of data now, which we analysed using chemical and sensorial methods in the lab. And so... What we found is that there's different compounds that are formed at different locations in the plant. And one of the outcomes from our research was actually the biosolids processing odor wheel. And so an odor wheel is kind of like a graphical representation which links different odors to different compounds that are responsible for those odors. So as somebody who's maybe a plant operator, they can wander around the plant and say, oh, this bit smells a bit vinegary. It's a bit unusual. And then they can use this diagram to kind of say, okay, so it's potentially due to this. And then they can troubleshoot the process and work out why there are these changes based on their nose. Okay, so it's an ongoing operational thing. They can tune the plant accordingly. Yeah. Okay. Another hint is we can use citizens as sensors is one of the fabulous aims that we have. Okay, and wh what else did you learn? Um, there's also other outcomes in terms of um, the way that you engage the community. So typically this is linking in with my um, colleagues' work. And so it was found that if you train people in the community on these odor wheels, then they can be much better at communicating which types of odors that they, they can smell. And then you can then link that in with the plant operation as well. So you can kind of have a much better picture as to what is going on and what are the actual things that are impacting the community. Because okay. it can be quite hard to isolate that sometimes. What, what sort of reception have you found? Have you been able to get this out into the field as it were? Yeah. So, um, the odor wheels are being used in our case study plants, which is great. 
and there's been some interest in some of the other utilities. So odor wheels are commonly used in drinking water as well. So we're applying this to a different field. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of interest because there is a lot of challenges and obviously um, utilities as well as people in the community would like smoother processes. Okay, now if if our listener is curious and say they've got maybe a sewage vent or a an abattoir or something near their home, uh, can they get hold of this and use it themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have journal articles that have been published and also um, the New South Wales EPA is a really good resource if they do have nuisance odours, but also just talking to the utility as well. So if you can get someone who works there who can just wander around and have a smell for you, that can be a good way to identify is it actually the utility or is it something else? So sometimes it can be quite hard to isolate. Is it the wastewater treatment plant or is it the mangroves next door or is it the landfill up the road? So therefore it's good to communicate with a lot of people, try and describe the odours to make sure that you can have a common language. Yeah, we, we were a bit weird in our household. We actually went on a tour of the treatment plant a few years ago. It was very interesting. Fabulous. Yeah, well, um, I remember reading a quote years ago and it said uh, that civilization uh, is measured by the distance from ourselves to our, our own excreta. Yeah, yeah, I guess there's some truth in that. I just want to swing back to the household situation, right, and uh, you, we mentioned use of perfumes and so on. But there's a difference, uh, there's an effect of the kind of textiles we have in the house. What's that, whether we yeah. use cotton or something else? Yeah, so because a lot of the compounds, um, obviously, that are responsible for odours, they have different structures. And so sometimes they combined more strongly to synthetic-type fabrics. And so you might find that you have a shirt and you wear it to a bushfire, to a bonfire or something like that, and you just can't get that smoky smell out. And that's sometimes because those compounds are associating with with the synthetic fibres, and so it's harder to remove them. So things like cotton are typically easier to wash and remove odours, and also things like cotton, because they do breathe more, they don't generate um, the microbial growth that can sometimes um, cause kind of body odor type odors. So you might find that sometimes you're wearing a t-shirt and you're like, hmm, this is a bit pungent. And maybe just have a look and see if it's a synthetic one rather than a cotton one. And maybe that's due to some of the microbial growth that's happening. Uh, I think it's called, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a glow, isn't it? I, I can remember renting an apartment once where there'd been cigarette smokers inside and the whole place stunk for years, and we just could not get rid of it. It was yeah. really not not good. I'm I'm actually writing a, a column at the moment about what happens into your bedroom when you don't shut the if you do shut the windows rather, and I'm looking about oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Mm. But, but uh, one of the things that it occurred to me was. You know, when they opened the hatch of the Apollo missions, the thing splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, right? Yeah. And the recovery crew opened the door and they went, yo, you guys really need a shower. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
That's intriguing. I've never thought of how much the space station would yeah. smell. <laughs> yeah, because the uh, Apollo uh, 13, they were up in the air for uh, in the in space for four days. Uh, Apollo 17 was uh, about six or seven days. And you imagine they didn't have a shower in those things. And here on Fuzzy Logic 2 X, Dr. Ruth Fisher, lecturer at the ODA Laboratory at the University of New South Wales.